The Lord be with you. <laughs> Let us pray. O Lord, teach thy people to love thy house, the best of all dwellings. Thy scriptures, the best of all books. Thy sacraments, best of all gifts. The communion of saints, best of all company. And that we may, as one family and in one place, give thanks and adore thy glory. Help us to keep always thy day, the first of days, holy unto thee, our maker, our resurrection, and our life. God blessed forever. Amen. Well, we are in a continuing study of John's gospel, and um, we are at John chapter 3 today. So if you have your Bibles, please be so kind as to open them up to John 3. We looked last week at that most famous text in all the Bible, John 3.16, and I want to come back to that text today. I mentioned last week, really in passing, that there is a sense in which this is the heart of the gospel, that if you can comprehend what John 3.16 is saying, you really understand what Christianity is all about. And we started last week by taking a look in particular at the subject of God's love. John 3.16, of course, says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him might not perish but have eternal life. So we talked about the love of God. And one of the things that we noted about the love of God is that it is a broad love. God loves the world. And we took a look at what that term world is. We said that in Greek, that word can be translated one of two ways. It can be a reference just to the created order, to the natural order of things, that God loves the things that he has made. And there is a sense in which that is certainly true. You read through the opening accounts in Genesis, and God looked on everything that he had made, and he pronounced a blessing on it. He said it was good. It was good. When he came to the creation of man, he said it is very good. So there can be a sense in which this is a reference simply to the created order, but that's generally not the way that the term is used, particularly in the New Testament. Often, when the term world or cosmos is used there, it is a reference to the spirit of the age, to a spirit of worldliness. It is a reference to the world as it stands in opposition to God. We Christians battle against three things, don't we? We battle against the world, we battle against the flesh, and we battle against the devil. So oftentimes, worldliness is condemned in the New Testament because worldliness is the, the zeitgeist, the spirit of the age that permeates everything, and that spirit is often in opposition to God. And that's one of the reasons why we said God's love is so great, because what John is telling us here is that God so loved the world. Not the world that was friendly toward God, but the world that lived in opposition to God. That's one of the things that makes God's love so great. You and I often love people who are lovable. That's the human tendency. But God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's the power of his Love. It is a great love. It is a broad love. It is a love for every man, every woman, every child, regardless of their background, regardless of the color of their skin, regardless of their economic status or their educational level. God loves them all. We have a wonderful hymn that captures this very well. Oh, love, how deep, how broad, how high, how passing thought and fantasy 
that God, the Son of God, should take our mortal form for mortal sake. Oh, that's it exactly, isn't it? That's exactly what John 3.16 is saying, that God's love is so broad, so great, so immense, that God sent His only Son. That's the greatest gift that anyone can give, is to give of themselves. And that is exactly what God does for us in the person of Jesus Christ. And yet, when you read Jesus' words carefully, you do come away with a sense that while God's love is broad, there is also a sense in which His love is narrow. For God so loved the world that, yes, He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him might not perish but have everlasting life. That's the narrowness of it. The full force of this love can only be realized by those who believe. By those who believe. And that brings us to a discussion about the nature of belief or the nature of faith. And all I can say is if you were in the 815 service today, Justin did a great job of setting me up. Because this is exactly what his preaching was all about today. His sermon was about the tenacity of faith. And I told him afterward I thought it was one of the finest pieces of exposition of that text that I've heard. He did an excellent job. So be prepared to come in and take notes. Read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest what he has to say because it's a powerful message today. But it's about the nature of faith. Faith, of course, is a central biblical idea. The word faith or belief can be found no less than 98 times in just the Gospel of John alone, just the fourth Gospel. Jesus said that if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you'll be able to say to that mountain, be removed and cast into the sea, and it will be done for you. And the author of Hebrews was even more emphatic. He said that without faith, it is impossible to please God. So if we don't have faith, we cannot even please God. That's how central this idea of faith is. But it raises a question, what does the Bible really mean by faith? We talk about faith all the time in the culture. We talk about having good faith, having bad faith, and so forth. But what does the Bible really mean by faith? If it is faith that is required in order for us to please God, if it is believing in Jesus Christ, a form of faith that is required in order for us to receive the benefits of His love and His salvation, what is true faith? Well, Justin made reference to this. As I said, he set me up today. I should just bring him back in here and make him repeat the whole sermon all over again. But he set me up for this. Ever since the Reformation, there have basically been three ideas that are central to an understanding of biblical faith. Three components, if you will. They're normally under the categories of Latin titles. The first is notitia. You can see it up there on the screen, notitia. The second is ascensus, and the third is fiducia. Now, some of those words will be somewhat familiar to us. Fiducia, for example, from which we get our term fiduciary. But all three of these elements are essential if it's going to be true biblical faith. So let's just unpack them for a second. First, if you're going to have genuine faith, the kind of faith that saves, the kind of faith without which we cannot be justified, you must have notitia. Now what is notitia? It's simply knowledge. 
If you're going to have faith in something, faith has to have an object. There must be a subject of your faith. You can't just have faith in nothing. You have to have faith in something. So the first element of true biblical faith is a genuine understanding of the subject. In this case, the subject is Jesus Christ. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So you have to have an understanding of who Jesus Christ is. That's first and foremost. You need to understand what the Bible says about Jesus. And since we've been studying the Gospel of John, you don't have to go very far to understand what the Bible says about Jesus. John has the highest Christology anywhere in the New Testament. Now, it's been some time since we were back in John chapter 1, but how does John chapter 1 begin? With that high-soaring Christology, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Without Him, nothing was made that was made. So the Logos, the Word, is what? God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then you get to verse 14, and you have this profound statement, and the Word, by whom all things were made, who is one with God, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. Now, there is no statement like that anywhere that God, the creator of the heavens and the earth, at one point in history, took on human flesh, came down, became one among us. So when we talk about faith, one of the first things you need to understand is who Jesus Christ is, that he is God in the flesh. I had someone come up to me not long ago, as I was coming into one of these classes, as a matter of fact, and this lady stopped me, and in great sincerity, she said to me, so what you're telling me is that Jesus is God. Yes, but you see, many people don't realize that. And I said, that's right. She said, where did I miss that? See, many people have a sense that no sense of the Trinity, no sense of the Godhead. But when we talk about Jesus Christ, we're talking about God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father, by whom... All things were made. That's what John chapter 1 is saying. So, you need to understand who Jesus Christ is. He's not just some moral exemplar. He's not just some prophet. He's not just some guru or spiritual guide. He is God Almighty in the flesh. And secondly, he is the unique Savior of the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believes in him might not perish. So the first element of biblical faith is to understand, namely, who Jesus Christ is and what Jesus Christ came to do. It's also helpful to know a little bit about ourselves as well. To recognize that we are not God. That may come as a revelation to some of you, but let me just tell you, you are not God, <laughs> even though we sometimes act that way, don't we? As though we're in charge, as though we're masters of our own fate, etc. So the first thing you need to understand is who Jesus Christ is. But you know, 
even though many people will understand who Jesus Christ is at least taught to be in the Scripture, as Justin pointed out in the sermon today, that's not enough. It's possible to understand the content of the Christian faith and yet nevertheless disagree with it. I think about the late um, Bishop of Newark, New Jersey, Jack Spong. Now, for those of you who are relatively new to Anglicanism, that may not be a name that you are familiar with. But Bishop Jack Spong was uh, very famous, I would go so far as to say infamous, but nevertheless, he was famous in the Episcopal Church in the 1970s, the whole way through the 1990s. Um, he wrote all kinds of scandalous books about how Christianity must change or die um, on fundamentalism and so forth. And basically, Bishop Spong, who was ordained to be a bishop in the Episcopal Church and who was ordained to defend the faith, denied every aspect of it. He openly denied the doctrine of the Trinity. He openly denied the doctrine of the atonement. He denied the doctrine of the virgin birth. Just go right on through the creed. Fitzsimmons Allison, our own bishop, once said that every time Jack Spong stands and says the creed, he perjures himself. And that was absolutely right. And yet here was a man who was sitting in a bishop's chair whose responsibility, quite frankly, was to defend the faith. And let me tell you something. He understood it. When he debated with conservatives, he understood the subject matter oftentimes better than they did. He just didn't agree with it. So it's not enough simply to know that the church teaches or that the Bible teaches that Jesus is the Son of God and the unique Savior of the world. There is a second element to biblical faith, and that is you must believe it yourself. You must be in agreement with it. You must assent to it, a census. But you know, even that is not enough. Because as Justin pointed out in the sermon, even the demons believe. Did you ever notice that whenever uh, Jesus encountered demon-possessed people, they were always the first ones to recognize him? Now, one of my favorite stories is actually not with Jesus, but it's later on in the book of Acts. The apostle Paul and his traveling companion Silas had gone to the town of uh, Philippi. And there they encountered this girl who we're told was possessed of a spirit of divination. Uh, the Greek is really interesting. It says she was possessed of the spirit of Pythona, the spirit of the python or the snake. Uh, and the reason for that was there was a shrine near Philippi dedicated to the god Apollo, the pagan god Apollo. And Apollo was the god who was associated with the snake or the serpent. There are a num well, number of stories that say that he either killed a snake or at one point he transformed himself into a snake. But at any rate, Apollo was associated with the snake. And there was this girl who was a slave girl, and she made a great deal of money by her masters by telling people's fortunes. And she was supposedly possessed of this spirit of Apollo, the pagan god. That's how she was able to do it. Now, actually, the New Testament understands that to be a demonic spirit. But the point is that it was by this demonic power that she was able to tell people's fortunes. And apparently, she was pretty good at it because she made a great deal of money for her masters. And what is interesting is that Paul and Silas one day were just passing through the town, going about their business, and this girl, nobody else even recognizes them. They're sort of just you know, passing through, a nameless face, and all of a sudden this girl cries out, these men are servants of the Most High God, 
and they are telling you the way to be saved. And we're told she kept it up for several days until finally Paul turned and rebuked the spirit and it came out of the girl. Now people say, well, what she was saying was true. Well, that's absolutely correct. But let's be honest, if you're looking for a character witness, a demon-possessed girl is probably not what you're hoping for. <laughs> and so Paul cast it out. But what is interesting is that the girl recognized who Paul and Silas were and recognized that they were servants of the Most High God. In an age of polytheism, this meant the true God. And furthermore, she understood what? That they had come to show people the way to be saved. So the demons recognized even when no one else did. Satan knows exactly who Jesus Christ is, and he knows exactly what he's come to do. And he has a greater knowledge of that than you and I can ever hope to have, at least in this earthly life. So, notitia, content of the truth is important, but agreement with the truth is also essential. You have to say, yes, I not only understand this is what the church teaches, I believe it. But listen, even that is insufficient. Even that is not true biblical faith. Even that is not the faith that saves. Something else, yet again, is required. What is required? Trust. Commitment. This is the fiducia part. Ignore what's on the screen up there. I misnumbered things. You have to trust in Jesus Christ. You have to trust in him personally. Now, the illustration that I've used before to demonstrate what true biblical faith is, is a parachute. You can understand what a parachute is. And you can understand even how a parachute works. You know that a parachute is supposed to be something that will save your life if you have to jump out of an airplane. All right, that's notitia. You know what a parachute is. You know what it's designed to do. What's the essences? You believe that it's capable of saving you if you're in peril. Because why? You, you've seen it with other people. You, you've seen soldiers, for example. Airborne soldiers jump out of airplanes and pull the ripcord, or you've seen people who've done skydiving, and you understand, yes, it is capable of saving you. I agree that it's capable of doing that. But that is entirely different from strapping it on your back and jumping out of an airplane with nothing between you and certain death but a piece of nylon. That's something entirely different, isn't it? That's not mere knowledge. That's not mere agreement. That is absolute trust. And that, the New Testament said, is the nature of biblical faith. It's knowing who Jesus Christ is, it's believing in what he came to do, and it's trusting your whole destiny to him. That is what is required in order for a person to be saved, and that is a journey. It's the beginning of a journey, a lifelong journey of faith, and you're going to hear more about that in the sermon, so I'll let Justin deal with that subject today. That's what faith is. So let me ask you the question. Do you have that kind of faith? I'm not asking the question, do you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? I'm not even asking if you can stand and recite the words of the creed without crossing your finger. I'm asking the question, have you placed your whole trust for your eternal destiny 
Just ask yourself this question. If you were to die today and stand before the bar of God's justice, and God says, why should I let you in? Are you going to count on the fact that God, you think, grades on the curve? Is that what you're going to do? Well, Lord, I'm not perfect. I know that. But I did the best that I can. Is that what you're going to say to the Lord? Or are you going to say, I have trusted solely in the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Nothing in my hand I bring. I've got nothing. There's, there's no reason, Lord, why you should accept me into the, your kingdom. The only thing I have is the shed blood of Jesus. Have mercy. Because that's what biblical faith is. That's what it means to truly believe. John 5, 24. Again, faith is a central element in this fourth gospel. He who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and doesn't come into judgment. I love this last part but has passed, not will pass, but already in the present, by belief, has passed from death into life. The sentence of death that hangs over humanity, and that's what we're going to come to next, has passed from you. It's passed from you. What a wonderful passage. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes, not just believes in, but believes on Jesus Christ, should not perish but have everlasting life. Wonderful text. Good news. But it raises a serious question in the minds of many thinking people. What's the question? What about those who do not believe? And that's what John 3.16 says, for God so loved the world that whoever believes in him might not perish, might pass from death to life. But what about those who do not believe? This is the part that really makes people uncomfortable, especially in the light of what comes next in the text. So if you have your Bibles, let's go ahead and read verses 16 and following because it's critical. And it helps us to understand the urgency of gospel preaching. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. What about those who do not believe? Well, Jesus says very clearly here. John says very clearly here, they stand condemned. 
Now, why do we struggle with that? I think we struggle with that because we want the love of God without the justice of God. We want a loving God who just gives blanket amnesty, or at least that's what we think. But we do not want a God who calls people to account. I said that's what we think because if you actually step back for a moment and consider the idea of blanket amnesty, you begin to realize that there is no justice in the world then. And let's just go ahead and admit it. There are some terrible things that happen in the world. Terrible people do terrible, evil, wretched things. Now, we may have been protected from that largely in our own lives, but many people have not. I mean, what's going on in Ukraine today without weighing into the political situation is tragic because of one man's grasp for power. And he's just one in a long line of wicked and cruel people. He's nothing new. He just happens to be the, the, the current iteration of it. But go back in time, the 20th century in particular was one of the most evil centuries in the history of mankind. For all of our advances in science and technology and all of that, we put a man on the moon and so forth. Think about the amount, the number of lives that were lost in the 20th century alone because of wars. The First World War, places like the Somme, the Second World War. First World War was supposed to be the war to end all wars. Well, it didn't. And then you think just the wars that we've been involved, and that doesn't even count the wars of other nations and uprisings and genocides. It's a terrible, evil century. Don't we want to know that people like Idi Amin and Adolf Hitler and Benito Mussolini and people like that one day are going to be called to account for what they did, for the fact that the Nazis skinned Jewish people and made their skin into lampshades. Now, that's just sickening, but it's what happened, folks. Don't you want to know that God one day will bring justice? That justice will roll down like fountains? Of course we do. But you see, that is an aspect of God's character as well. As much as we talk about the love of God, we cannot forget that God is also a God of justice, and He will not turn a blind eye forever to wickedness and evil. Of all the adjectives, you've heard me say this before, that are used to describe God in the New Testament, but in the Bible as a whole, the one that is used more than any other is not love, it is holiness. God is the Holy One, and justice and love are both aspects of his character. So, we don't want a world without justice. But that means that God cannot overlook human sin. You and I treat it as something light, but God does not. So that's the first reason why there are those who do not believe and who stand condemned already. It's because God is a righteous judge. But here's the second reason. We tend to think that we approach God on neutral ground. I mean, let's be honest. That's exactly what we, we think. We think that mankind um, is really neutral when we come out of the womb 
And it's only if we choose to do evil as opposed to choose to do good. The problem with that, of course, is that that's not a biblical picture of the human condition. We are already under judgment. I mean, keep your finger there in John and turn to Romans chapter 1 for just a minute. Uh, This is a very familiar section, but it's one of those foundational sections because it helps us to understand. You know, many people take a look at the world around us. You read the news, you watch Fox, or you watch even the BBC with what's going on in Britain these days, and people say, why is the world the way that it is? Well, Christians should not be the least bit surprised as to why the world is the way that it is. Romans chapter 1, verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so that men are without excuse. That's the human condition. That's our natural state. That's, the first, that's one of the reasons why the first thing that a child ever learns to say is no. Because it's in our being. It's, it's part of our nature. We are all OS positive. We are all, without exception, sinners. That is the unanimous testimony of Scripture. Isaiah says, all we like sheep have gone astray. All of us have gone astray. Romans 3 says, there is no one righteous, no, not one. Romans 6 says, the wages of sin, that is to say the consequences of sin is what? Sin, death. Psalm 51, David, his great confession of sin, mentions the fact that he was brought forth in iniquity. He says, in my mother's womb, I was a sinner. That's why that passage in John 5, those who believe have passed from death to life because you and I are already in the land of the dying. I like to say sin and death are the two verifiable Christian doctrines. We see them everywhere we turn. Now, we might think to ourselves that, my goodness, I would never do what Hitler would do. But what the Bible teaches is that there is within us the potential to do evil things, given the right circumstances. We are all capable of that. That is the testimony of Scripture. And so here we are. We are all condemned. We are all sinners. We all suppress the truth about God because God has made himself known. And then there is the case for the prosecution. What's the case for the prosecution? This is the human condition, one. Second, God has made a way whereby men can be delivered from their sorry state. Hallelujah. For God so loved the world that he what? Gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him might not perish. But there are men who do not believe. They refuse God's way of salvation. They suppress the truth about God. What don't they believe? They don't believe in God's only Son. 
They tend to believe that there's another way to be saved, that they can save themselves, perhaps, but they do not believe that Jesus is the one and only way. They think to themselves, I just can't be that bad. Or the human condition is not just that bad. So Jesus says they're already condemned because, one, we're born sinners. It's, it may be latent in children. You may not see it right away, but eventually you do. I love St. Augustine's quote about little children. He said, the innocence of children has nothing to do with the purity of their character. It has everything to do with the smallness of their stature. And if you've ever had little children, you know how true that really is. Oh, they seem so sweet, but let me tell you, they can be difficult. So we're all sinners. We're born that way. And we just invent ways of doing evil, especially as we get older. But God has provided a way whereby we can say, be saved. Now, that's the good news. But the problem is that there are some people who willfully reject And why do they reject it? Well, John goes on to tell us why they reject it. They reject it because men loved the darkness. Don't be fooled into believing that some people perish out of ignorance. That is exactly what Romans is te teaching against. God has made himself known in the things that have been made. You have to turn a blind eye. You have to suppress the truth not to realize that. And furthermore, Jesus said it's not just a case of them suppressing the truth. The, really, the real reason why people reject Jesus Christ and God's free offer of salvation is why? Because he says, and this is really the harsh part, it's really because they love the darkness rather than the light. I think it's very interesting that in this particular section, John uses that term light five times. The light. There's a contrast between the light and the darkness. What does darkness do? It conceals. They prefer the darkness to the light. Turn, if you will, for just a moment to 2 Timothy chapter 3. And you know this section of 2 Timothy, Paul's last letter, incidentally. We've been looking at 2 Timothy for the past several weeks. But the interesting thing about 2 Timothy chapter 3 is that, again, this is Paul's last letter. He wrote this way back in the first century, but I think it is a description of the world in which you and I live. Paul's writing to his young friend, and he says, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Now tell me that is not a picture of 21st century American culture. And yet people love that. We promote this. We praise this. We extol this. We strive for this. 
And that's why people stand condemned. It's not because God is not loving. God has provided a way. It's because people prefer to live in the darkness rather than in the light. Now, it's not hard to understand why people want to live in the darkness. We all know what light does. Light has a tendency to do what? To reveal. And there are lots of things that we don't like to have revealed. It has a tendency to expose. And nobody likes to be exposed. That's one of the reasons why the Pharisees could not stand Jesus, is because whenever they came into contact with him, he exposed them for all of their hypocrisy. Why is it that most crimes take place at night? Because you can conceal them. But here's the really tragic thing. God's light, well, it does expose us. It exposes our sin and our wickedness, all the things, the, the, the thoughts of our minds. I mean, the prayer that we utter at the beginning of the worship service, the colic for purity, think about that. Almighty God, unto whom all hearts are open. Let me ask you a question. Would you like me, if I could, to flash up there on the screen the thoughts of your hearts? Every thought you've ever had? Almighty God, unto whom all hearts are open, all desires known. How about your desires? And from whom, what? No secrets are hid. How many of you have secrets? Everybody better raise their hands. There's everybody out there has a secret. We all have secrets. We don't want anybody to know about these. But he is the one unto whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and the one from whom no secrets are hid. That's what the light of God does. It exposes us. But not with the intent of humiliating us. But with the intent of bringing us to the end of ourselves, where we realize what we really are, what kind of a situation we're really in. So we recognize our desperate state, and we also recognize that, hallelujah, because he loves us in spite of our wickedness, he has provided a way whereby we can be saved. Now, some people will say, oh, but it's not fair that he's only provided, you know, one way. Well, let's look at it from God's perspective. He doesn't have to provide any way. The drowning man does not say when the man hands him some driftwood to pull him ashore, no, thank you, I would prefer a life preserver. He'll take hold of whatever is offered to him. And that is what God has done in the person of Jesus Christ. He loves us, but we will never recognize that love. We will never place our trust in him so long as we think that we are fine just the way we are, so long as we continue to suppress the truth, so long as we continue to live and prefer the darkness. If you have one prayer, pray, and it's a, it is a humbling prayer, and it will be painful initially, but Lord, grant me the grace to see myself as I really am. And grant me the grace to see Jesus Christ for who he really is. And if you can do that, when you begin to see yourself for what you really are, and by the way, the closer you get to Jesus Christ, the more your faults 
your sins will become apparent to you. Even if they don't become apparent to anybody else, they'll become apparent to you. Why? Because the closer you get to the light, the more the cracks, the flaws, and the blemishes come out. That's why everybody has a romantic dinner under candlelight, not fluorescence. <laughs> the closer you get to the light, the more you're going to see your faults, but the more you will see the grace, the mercy, and the love of God, how deep, how broad, how passing thought and fantasy. But thou, the Son of God, should take our mortal form for mortals sake. So don't grump about the fact that a way has been provided. Rejoice. Even if it's only one way, God has provided a means whereby we can be saved. For God so loved the world, even when it was a mess, that he sent his one and only son that whoever believes in him might not perish pass from death to life. Let us pray. Father, there is an urgency in the gospel message. We are concerned for souls that stand condemned, that are perishing. And so as Christians, we need to be clear about what we believe. We need to place our trust in Jesus Christ wholly and completely, not just at one point in our lives, although that is important, but every day of our lives. We need to exhibit this, and we need to share this good news with a world that is living in darkness, that prefers the darkness. We need to bring the light of the gospel. It's painful to be exposed, yes, but... Under its warming glow, we find that our hearts are transformed and changed. Lord, help us to understand that it's true. People are dying without you and perishing for eternity. Grant us the grace to give it everything that we have. To, as Wesley said, pluck the brands from the burning. For Jesus' sake.